Greetings, my good people. How are you? What is happening? What's going on? What is the latest and greatest? How's everybody doing out there? Hope everybody's feeling well, getting their week off to a great start, and here to do the same on this podcast to deliver everything that's going on in the world of sports is none other than yours truly, J Reels here, the host of the J Reels podcast. For my first timers, welcome aboard, and for those who've been banging with me for now 108 episodes, I welcome you guys back. Again, it's a Monday, January the 13th, in the year of our Lord 2020. My J Reels, what's the deal segment? That's right, what is on tap over the course of the next hour? Well, it goes as follows. We will finally have a national champion crowned in college football tonight, as it seems it's been three months, let alone two and a half weeks. We'll get that down in the Superdome between the LSU Tigers and the Clemson Tigers. You know what? Let me make my prediction now. The Tigers will win the national championship. Obviously, I'll delve into that a little bit later on. Also, get into the Major League Baseball, the latest with the Boston Red Sox. Now, they're accused of cheating back in the 2018 World Series champion year. You'll get my take on that, as well as what's happening in the NBA, NHL, college basketball even, as it's become even more topsy-turvy by the week with a couple of major upsets over the weekend. But now, we are down to four. And with it being down to four, we are now down to three. Meaning that we have final four teams in the NFL. The championship weekend is set as we have Tennessee going up against Kansas City in the first game next Sunday, or this coming Sunday, at 3.05, following up with the Green Bay Packers going to San Francisco, or really Santa Clara, to play the San Francisco 49ers. And then, of course, two weeks after that, we have a Super Bowl, so we're down to the final three games of the football season. Unbelievable to think that the this is the one season that just flies. You know, Unlike baseball, obviously, it's 162 games and then all the playoffs. Same with the NBA, NHL. We know it takes forever. But the NFL with its 16, 17 weeks, and then the postseason right now, we are already down to our precious few when it comes to the playoffs and obviously the coronation, which would be the big celebration three weeks from yesterday down in Miami for Super Bowl 54. And the theme this week, unlike last week where you had three very good games, including the Patriots being defeated finally, not having to worry about them for the rest of this postseason, this week was not a complete opposite but certainly did not have as much drama that we had here in the division around that we got last week in the wild card round. So to me, that's number one. And last week, I went in order with the games. This week, I'll do a different take. I'll go based on, to me, what was the number one storyline of the weekend was the Ravens losing. I get that a 1A could be what happened in Kansas City yesterday, down 24 nothing, and of course, we'll touch on that. The NFC games were, eh. I understand Seattle made a late push there. To make it interesting, you kind of wondered if Russell Wilson was going to pull some magic out of his rear end. Obviously, that wasn't to be. And then the Saturday game, the Niners just dominated. That's all there is to it. Their defense certainly shown up the way they have pretty much all year and gave the Vikings just a beatdown in the back of the old woodshed. But the number one storyline on the weekend has to be what took place Saturday night. And I was totally shocked. If you listened to the podcast last week, I thought it would be chalk. I thought the ones and twos would certainly be the teams that would make it to the championship round. But I did say that if there was going to be one upset, if there was a team that was going to go in there and had the best chance of winning, was the Tennessee Titans. And we saw what happened there Saturday night. Obviously, the run game and Derrick Henry, who right now is by far the MVP of the playoffs. Not that there's ever such a thing, but the way he's performed here in these first two games and what he did there Saturday night, even throwing for a touchdown, Certainly, you have to underline that big time as the guy that's pretty much carried this team to where they are right now, to the championship game, which I believe is the first time the Titans have made it to the title game since 2002 when they played the Raiders. Uh, That was the year the Raiders went to the Super Bowl to play the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. But the 
Ravens and Titans, I know a lot of people were looking forward to this matchup considering what Lamar Jackson had done all year. He's going to win the MVP despite the fact of his performance there on Saturday night. And I know it's easy to say let's start there, but I want to give the Titans credit first because everybody knows I hate the Ravens. I'm a huge Steeler fan, and you can never like the Ravens no matter what. But I'm going to take it more from a Titan positive perspective, and then I'll get to my Ravens point. But give it up. For two playoff games, Ryan Tannehill's done just enough. It's been all Derrick Henry, and the defense has made some big stops when they need to, and that's been the recipe so far for the Titans in this postseason. When you look at that first drive, or really the second drive for the Titans, where they were able to get the touchdown to Jonu Smith there in the corner of the end zone, which was, with the way the rule is in this day and age, you never know if that was going to catch, you never know if that was going to be a touchdown. Sure enough, great play by him. He was able to corral it, touchdown, so they're off and running. And you think that, hey, could there be a possibility that the Titans, not, not that they have a staunch defense, but knowing that they could play pretty well, and you saw what they did last week to a Patriot team that, let's face it, not the same Patriot team that we've become accustomed to over the years, but still maybe they'll have enough gas in the tank with the lead, and we haven't seen the Ravens come from behind at all, it seems, all year. So when you factor that in, but then on the next drive, the Ravens have the ball, and then they get to that fourth and one, the first one of two in the game, and they get stymied there. And now that you're thinking at that moment, uh, all right, well, they get stuck there. Let's see what the Titans are going to do short field. I understand it was around the 45-yard line of the Ravens. So you kind of wonder, hey, is that something you could question when you're a one John Harbaugh? But considering they were 8-for-8 eight eight in the regular season, you're thinking to yourself, you have the MVP. You have a guy who's as dynamic of a player as there is in the league. Why not go for it? So they get stuffed. Okay, fine. To me, this was one eye-raising play that you've seen a lot of teams do in the past. And generally, even with a team like the Titans, who, as we all know, they're not going to beat you up and down the field with their passing game. But I love the aggressiveness by Mike Vrabel at that point where he just went for the juggler there. He knew that this is a team. He's going to have to put points on the board. He can't settle for field goals. As much as he wants to take time off the clock, he knew he had to be aggressive. And in that point of the game, not to say that that was the biggest play of the game, but it was certainly crucial because for him to get that pass, Khalif Raymond up the middle of the field for the 14-0 lead, that right there you knew that they meant business. They weren't coming here to protect the lead. They weren't coming here to sit on it. They weren't just going to feed the ball to Derrick Henry a million times and hopefully he takes him home. At that juncture, I thought to myself, the Titans are here to play. No conservative play calling. Certainly just went right for it at that point, and I thought that was an excellent move by the coach and them taking a 14-0 lead. And then at that point, you kind of look and see, and I've said this all along, you look at it more later in the game if you thought that maybe what would Lamar Jackson and company do if it's midway through the third quarter and they're down by 10 or down by two scores, whatever it may be. But here, it was early part of the game, 14 nothing. They weren't really able to muster a lot. Now, granted, he did throw that interception, Lamar Jackson, early, and it was a bad throw by him. It certainly was off target, off the hands of Mark Andrews, and it was picked off by Kevin Bayard. And that's when the Ravens went ahead, or excuse me, the Titans went ahead and drove down for their opening score. But Lamar Jackson certainly didn't get a lot of help from his receivers. They had a lot of drop balls in that game. Obviously did a lot on the ground. And a lot of those yards, and whether it was through the air or on the ground, they were certainly more in garbage time because the game was 28-6 at one point. But even then, 
They certainly did not have a lot of fluidity with their offense like they've had, obviously, all year. Remember, they came into this game winning 12 straight, and one of the storylines that I had going into the postseason was, are the Ravens going to run the table pretty much from week four to win 15 straight games to hoist the Lombardi Trophy? I didn't think it was going to be the case. I didn't think they were going to get picked off here. But when you look at it from a grand scheme of things, knowing that they've been just a juggernaut all year, and for them to really not get their sea legs at any point of this game, it made you wonder if the three weeks off, because remember, they took that week 17 off against the Steelers, most of their starters, and obviously they had to buy and then to come back here on the Saturday night where they certainly couldn't muster anything in that opening half. And even as they drove the field down, they made it 14-3. And even as they drove the field down at the end of the first half, Lamar Jackson completed a third and 16. Then had another big play, John Brown, who, let's face it, he was a acrobatic catch to a certain extent, extended his hand out in traffic, made the play. And I thought right there, because they ended up kicking a field goal and they weren't able to get a touchdown. Now, mind you, I believe it was about 11 seconds on the clock. But if they would have punched it in for a touchdown, knowing that they were going to get the ball to start the second half, then I would have thought something. I would have said, oh, now the Ravens have gas in their tank. They're going to get the ball to start the second half. As it was, they just kicked the field goal. And here was the critical point of the game. So now they get the ball to start the second half. They're moving the ball. And they actually did move the ball on the Titans most of the night. Now, granted, I understand a lot of it was garbage time, so you're going to see a lot of prevent. You're going to want them to, they're going to want the Ravens to eat the clock up as much as they can just to get to the final zeros at the end of the fourth quarter. But when they were at that juncture, I believe that they tightened somewhere around the 35 yard line, and another fourth and one came up. And what happens? They get stuffed again. And then after that, once they get stuffed, they had that third and one there for the Titans on that next possession. And then Derrick Henry just goes 66 yards up the seam, pretty much down the sideline, gets stopped there at the goal line. And then you knew that it wasn't going to be in the cards for the Ravens that night. Just the way they, the body language, you could just tell that they were just out of it. And even though they get the score there on the jump pass by Derrick Henry to make it 21-6, but even then that was going to be an uphill battle because we've never seen this team come from behind at all this year. And as I've said, weeks upon weeks upon weeks upon weeks, Lamar Jackson, we all know he's a wonderful talent. He is a guy that I'm sure they're going to catch up to him because we could go through all the quarterbacks as we have in the past that have that style, that it's pretty much going to be more run than pass. And they do need a few more weapons on offense because they just cannot be reliant on the tight end all the time. But with that said, knowing that they can't come from behind, knowing that they haven't had that makeup to be able to say, okay, we're down 10, we're down 15, down 20, we're going to come back. The one thing is about this team, and you always wondered, the Ravens are a team that wants to throw the ball when they have to, not when they absolutely must. And that's what you saw there Saturday night. Because all year long, they were able to throw the ball when they want to. Hey, we got second and one, we could throw it down the field. Hey, we got second and two. Obviously, we get first downs by chunks, whether on the ground whether it's, of course, with the quarterback or whether it's Mark Ingram, who obviously wasn't healthy on Saturday night, or Gus Edwards, etc. But no, now when they had to throw the ball, that's when you saw all the chinks in the armor. So therefore, to start that next drive, down 21-6, they get the fumble with Lamar Jackson scrambling around. He's trying to make a play. He gets sacked, fumble, they get it recovered. And next thing you know, Tannehill's punching it into the end zone, 28-6, and you can just pretty much call the game from there. And that's the one thing. I wanted to see this in January with Lamar Jackson. And it's not an attack on him as a player because, as we all know, he's had a phenomenal year. He's going to get the trophy. There's no, I'd be shocked if he doesn't win the MVP. 
But the thing is, is that I need to see this when the money's on the line. And I don't want to hear because he's 23 years old. And I don't want to hear that, hey, he's still young. He has his whole career. Yes, he does. But this was a team that had won 12 straight, was 14-2, and two, was by far the best team in the regular season. And they laid a big, giant egg on M&T Bank on the 50-yard line there Saturday night. That's all there is to it. I understand 31 for 59. When you look at 59 passes in the game, please, I think there was maybe like a four or five game stretch where he threw that many passes if you take any particular block throughout the course of the season. But now, you exit stage right, it was a bitter loss, and I don't care what Raven fan says, whether you're Mallory Rubin, who's a diehard Raven fan, they say, oh, this is a special team, it's always going to rank up there. To me, when you lose in the divisional round. And I understand that's football. It could happen at any point, at any time. And we've seen it a million times in the past. But that is just a bad way to end the season. If you lose in a championship game at home to a Kansas City, you can live with it. But lose to the Tennessee Titans, who are pretty much a one-dimensional team. And I understand they have the hot running back right now. We get that. But uh, to me, that was just inexcusable. Just a brutal loss. And again, I understand the receivers did not help out Lamar Jackson in any way, shape, or form. But there you have it. Now Tennessee moves on to face the Kansas City Chiefs. And we'll talk about the Chiefs right now where when you look at how this game started and the Texans get the touchdown, all right, fine, no problem. Everything's fine and dandy. You figure 7-0, road team's getting off to that good start. All is well. But then you get the block punt. And before you know it, 14 nothing. And then you're thinking to yourself, if you're Andy Reid and especially if you're the Kansas City Chiefs, you have to be scratching your head thinking, oh, geez, this can't happen again. Not in our building. There's no way. And then, of course, the score slowly but surely becomes 24-0 to the tune where kind of what happened with Lamar Jackson there on Saturday night, you're getting the same thing where you're getting drops by Travis Kelsey, Robinson's making drops, the other wide receiver, and all you could do is just say to yourself, wait a minute, how could Kansas City just come in here? Obviously, they blew the play on special teams. They're unable to muster anything. We get that the drops there by the wide receivers and the tight end, but how could this score be 24-0? You could kind of sense the turn at 21-0 on that third and nine where Duke Johnson gets that close where it's fourth and inches. And Bill O'Brien, for whatever reason, he calls a timeout. So it makes you think that, okay, he's calling a timeout. All right, is he going to go for it? What is he gonna... No, he ends up kicking a field goal. And it makes you think, wait a minute, he didn't even think once to try to Go ahead and go for it there, even at fourth and inches. And I understand that people are going to look at it and say, well, hey, they had a 21 nothing lead, kicked the field goal. You're still up technically three scores with the three touchdowns and then three two-point conversions, but it's still early in the game that you're not even thinking that. You're going to look at it more from a four-score game. Even if you miss it there, and we get that last week, he blew that fourth and one there against the Bills where Deshaun Watson got stuffed there. But so what? Let the Chiefs go the length of the field. If it ends up being 21-7, so be it. To me, you have to be aggressive. You know that this offense is high-powered. This is an offense that certainly could blow the game open at any point of the, any juncture of the game. I don't care if it's early second quarter, mid-third quarter, or even halfway through the fourth quarter. This is a team that is like a pinball machine. And then what happens? So it's 24-0. Then the Chiefs finally get it up and going. They get the touchdown there, 24-7. And then this is where... Bill O'Brien shouldn't even made it on the plane heading back to Houston. Because what in the world is he doing at 24-7 going for a fake punt from his own 31? What was he trying to do? Is he trying to outsmart the opponent there? He was trying to catch him off guard or catch him flat-footed? 
if that was the case, this is the reason why you should have gone for it. And maybe that was him trying to make up for the, the blunder. Let's face it. I understand he kicked a field goal. They got points, etc. But for him to go for it there, it was almost as if he was trying to justify that, well, geez, let me be aggressive here because I should have been aggressive there. And I'll look like a genius if the play is executed. Well, obviously it wasn't executed. Next thing you know, punching it in the end zone, Travis Kelsey. On the ensuing kickoff to get the fumble, it's 24-21. And then you blink your eyes again and it's halftime and it's 28-24. I get it if the ball was 4th and 1 at the 38-yard line. And even then, they probably should have gone for it then. But considering they were at the, what, 12-yard line? That was a 31-yard field goal? Why not go for it? Well, I mean, what's the difference? This is a team where you know they have unbelievable firepower. We know the quarterback is always going to be perennial MVP candidate from here on out, barring his health. And imagine if they would have got the first down, they would have killed some more clock. And let's say even if they kicked the field goal, they take a few more minutes off the clock. Who knows? But instead, it's 24 nothing, and we all know what happens. That was 28-24. And then all the records that the Chiefs did, considering that they were down 24 nothing, they're the first team in NFL history to be down 20 points and then to take the lead at halftime. And then, of course, they scored 41 unanswered after that because they get two touchdowns there in the third quarter before Deshaun Watson gets a touchdown there to make it 41-31. But they broke all these records, which... Listen, I, when you look and you see 24 nothing. if you weren't watching this game, and let's just say you're in passing and you see 24 nothing, this unbelievable. And you're thinking, all right, well, the Chiefs could come back. Maybe in the fourth quarter it'll be close or whatever. By the time the fourth quarter came around, it was 48-31. It, it was just mind-boggling. It was really a tale of two games when you think about it. But as I said, they broke all these records. You know, they're the first to win by 20 points after being down by 20. You know, they scored 50 points in the final three quarters that hadn't been done in NFL playoff history. So the Chiefs, as you've seen time and time again, especially with this quarterback at the helm and with all the weapons that they have, they have just a team that is never out of it. I mean, even look back to last year in the championship game, they weren't able to muster up anything against the Patriots, but then they scored 31 points in the second half. Now, we know the end result. We get that. But at the same time, that's just the Chiefs in a nutshell. So to think Bill O'Brien... By him calling that timeout to kick a field goal, senseless. And then, mindless for him to go for a fake punt up 24-7 at 4th and 4 and it's on 31. He's not going to be able to sleep all winter. And obviously, I do not trust him in a huge spot if you ask me. Or what, or what could you say? It's just uh, If you're a Texan fan, you got to be sick to your stomach knowing that you had a three-score lead. Granted, it was 11 minutes left in the third quarter, but then for him to just throw it all away and then the special teams blows it there with the muff on the kickoff. Ugh. And Deshaun Watson, you know, he had a good game. We understand that, you know, when you have a big lead like that, and, you know, his numbers were good, and he did all he could. But the combination of coaching, of course, the Texan defense, where was J.J. Watt? Was he anywhere to be found? And that's one thing about J.J. Watt. In huge games and big games, he, he is invisible. And we get he had a sack last week in a Buffalo game when they were down, but, you know, he could get all the sacks he wants against the Jacksonvilles of the world. He could get all the sacks he wants against Miami's, all against the dregs of the league in a huge spot. This guy's nowhere to be found. And then the NFC games, which were really quiet when you think about it. You go back to Saturday. Uh, I mean, it was all Niners. We were hoping that the Viking front seven would show up there to kind of rattle Jeremy Garoppolo, considering that this was his first playoff game, playoff start, as well as Kyle Shanahan being the coach of the 
San Francisco 49ers, they get the first score of the game, and then they follow that with the Vikings on the ensuing possession. They get the pass on the sideline where Stephon Diggs burns the cornerback Witherspoon, and then you're thinking, all right, Vikings are in it. Let's see if they could continue to muster some offense. And when you think about it, that was the only offense that you could actually even talk about for the Vikings that day. That drive, that really that one catch, not even a drive. Because they had seven three and outs. They only had 147 total yards in the game. That's net yards, of course. And San Francisco, they just punished them defensively. And pretty much when the game turned around, we had the Garoppolo interception at 14-7 right before the half. And you're thinking if Minnesota could punch this in, and to me, I looked at it as they have to get this in the end zone. Because if they're able to score a touchdown, make this 14-14, who knows how San Francisco comes out to start off the Second half, and sure enough, they ended up getting a field goal. They made it 17-10. All right, fine. But even then, it was 17-14. They're still just a field goal away. But then the play of the game was Kirk Cousins throwing that pick to Richard Sherman at 17-10. And then, obviously, they scored the touchdown that pretty much, to me, iced the game. It was 24-10, and Minnesota just could not get themselves out of a wet paper bag. It was just a bad performance offensively to the point where the defense, or to say the offensive coordinator, Kevin Stefanski gets hired by the Cleveland Browns, which I'll get to a little bit later on. But credit to the Niner defense, stout as could be. They harassed Kirk Cousins all afternoon. Dalvin Cook, nine carries, 18 yards, non-factor in the game. What could you say? Just a tough ending for the Vikings, considering the week before that big win down in New Orleans against the Saints. And they laid their, themselves a big egg out in Levi Stadium. And the Niners are certainly looking stout here. As they'll go up against the Green Bay Packers, where yesterday, I get it that it was interesting late. The Packers had a 21-3 lead and a 28-10 lead in this game. And despite the fact that Russell Wilson did bring him back, and to me, besides the third down conversions, whether it was to Devontae Adams, who had a monster game, 8 for 160 and two touchdowns. And of course, the third and nine was a little controversial with Jimmy Graham with the catch. When you see the replay, and I understand they're not going to overturn that if it's not conclusive, but he looked like he was just a tad short. But again, just a tad short's not going to cut it. It has to be 1,000% obvious. And it would have been interesting to see if Seattle would have got the ball there to see if Russell Wilson would be able to pull out a game-winning drive there. Now, the drive before that, when they had the ball, before they ended up punting, and I thought it was smart for Pete Cowell to punt there. He had his three timeouts. And if it wasn't for the drop there by Malik Turner, they already had a first down. They had the ball, what, 454 left to go, down 28-23. They converted on the first down, the first pass. Then the second pass, second play of that drive, Malik Turner, wide open, past midfield, dropped the ball. I mean, nobody was around him. And that's a ball you absolutely have to catch. If he catches the ball there, they're already in packet territory. Who knows? They have the momentum. We're not going to know what's going to happen there. And then from there on out, they went three and out, including the sack where they had the punt. And again, that was smart by Pete Carroll. He had to do it. They had all three of his timeouts, including the two-minute warning. So you have to do that there. You can't go for it on fourth and 11. And then the Packers made the two big plays. The Adams played for 32 yards on a third and 10, which was enormous. And then the Jimmy Graham play and good night delights. And I understand you had a couple plays early on. You had that Hollister fumble where the Cleet Blakeman, the referee, says, okay, well, it was a fumble, but we couldn't determine who picked it up. Yes, it's been... Typical of the league the whole year when it comes to the officiating. But you had that. And uh, pretty much it was a game where you were hoping that 
you'd get that drama there even at 28-10. You know, they get the touchdown there with Lynch. And then later on, Tyler Lockett had a huge game. But you, you just knew that this game, there was no way that the Packers were going to lose. They pretty much had the game in hand. Although you wondered there at 454 whether or not that Russell Wilson was going to make this that much more interesting, but that wasn't the case. And the Seahawks go ahead out to sea as they fly back to the Pacific Northwest and the Green Bay Packers have a rematch with the San Francisco 49ers. And when you look ahead to championship weekend, both of these games are rematch games where the, we'll start with the AFC, so that's the first game, Tennessee and Kansas City to think. Kansas City's last loss this year. Remember, they were 12-4. and four. They ran the table there at the end of the year. They were 6-4 and four at one point. I believe they went into their bye at that time. 6-4. and four. And their last loss of this season was against the Tennessee Titans. It was in Tennessee, 35-32. Here's a rematch. I'm sure a lot of people are going to look at the Derrick Henry Express. Can he do it again? You know, he's had all these carries, rushed for all these yards, and pretty much, and it is no secret, you know that it's going to be Tannehill for a couple plays, and it's going to be all Derrick Henry. And even Baltimore, they were stacking eight in a box, and they were still getting their chunks. But how I look at this game, Kansas City right now, if this isn't Andy Reid, and I said even tweeted this yesterday, if this isn't Andy Reid and his moment to get to a Super Bowl and possibly win it, then it will never, ever happen. The chips fell where they they fell the right way after Baltimore losing. That's not to say they couldn't have gone into Baltimore and won, but knowing that now they have this game at home against a team that, let's face it, they're hot. They're Cinderella right now. The clock has not struck 12. The glass slipper is ready to be put on to go to the Super Bowl, but let's see if the clock does strike 12 at around 6 p.m. Eastern on Sunday, or will they go ahead and have the upset of the year for them to go into Kansas City and win this game? I think it's going to be, it would almost have to be Giants-Bills to a certain extent where they would have to have the ball for 40 minutes in order for them to win the game. And obviously they can't turn the ball over. So that's what you're looking at in that game. And as far as Green Bay-San Francisco, that was a rematch of that Sunday night game, 37-8. to I don't think the game is going to be that much of a blowout because usually what happens is that when you have a regular season matchup that's a blowout and you're thinking, oh, geez, it's going to be the same thing, you know the Packers are going to hear that all week long. They're going to look at that and say, they're going to just look at that tape and obviously they've thrown that away. It's already in the garbage. But they're going to have to certainly retool. They're certainly going to have to have a much more better attack to counter with the Niner defense. And the thing is about Green Bay, they weren't really that impressive on offense yesterday. Yeah, the opening drive, Devontae Adams, the and they had their moments without question. But the thing is, is that when you look at the end of the day, Rodgers you know, just threw for over 200 yards, was what, 14 for 24. Of course, he made the big plays when he needed to, and that's all that matters when you're a winning quarterback is making the big third down pass or the timely pass, whatever it may be. And now here we are. Niners-Packers, and listen, to me, the way this is set up, I think the Packers, can they put up a fight? Yes. Matt LaFleur, let's see him in a big spot. Now, granted, he had pretty much the lead the whole game, so it's not as if he had to worry about some of his play calling or looked at some of his in-game management decisions, but now he's going into the deep end of the pool here with this rematch, and I could just see the Niners with the way they've been playing defense, and the Packers have played good defense as well, but I could just see the Niners winning this game, and you're going to have Kansas City and San Francisco there as your Super Bowl 54 matchup. And interestingly enough, I know I tweeted this too. Imagine if Houston would have won that game. 
where Tennessee and Houston would have been your AFC title game, the suits at CBS would have choked on their kale salads if Houston would have won that game. Now, granted, everybody's going to watch. They would have had a tremendous rating. But everybody knows that if it's going to be Houston or Tennessee going to a Super Bowl, oh, my goodness, that would have been just a nightmare for the league. But now you have Kansas City, which is good, and that helps them in that regard. Because obviously Mahomes, Head and Shoulders commercials, we know about how dynamic of an offensive team they are, etc. So to me, you would think it's Kansas City, San Francisco. Fox would do cartwheels. And speaking of cartwheels, I know I would do cartwheels today, just dancing on the Ravens' grave. And I have to a certain extent. But you know what? Hey, listen. To me, it was more about Tennessee than it was Baltimore, although Baltimore did not play well. But give credit to Tennessee. With that being said, if you have anything Tennessee... Green Bay, Tennessee, San Francisco, certainly not going to be sexy. I think it'd be in this order. They would want Casey, San Francisco, Fox, that is, for a Super Bowl. Casey, Green Bay, which would kind of, when you think about it, would be interesting because that would bookend not only just the 54 years, but the 100th year of the NFL, knowing that Super Bowl one was Green Bay, Kansas City, and then you have Super Bowl 54, Green Bay, Kansas City, and Green Bay and Kansas City did play in the regular season, so you also have that to chew on, where Tennessee, San Francisco, eh, and Tennessee Green Bay, meh. You know, it's pretty much going to be the monster under the bed with Derrick Henry being the guy that's going to be the focal point moving forward, whether they get past the Chiefs or not. I mean, if they do get past them, it's still going to be all about him, but you get my drift. Now, let's see. Uh, so just to go through some news and notes before we turn our attention to some other things, the coaching carousel started uh, pretty much when we signed off last week where – you have Mike McCarthy now in Dallas, who signs a five-year deal. And I understand that everybody wants the hot coordinator or the college coach, whatever it may be. But to me, this is the right fit. Because you have a team that is young, but they've been together for quite a few years, especially on offense. You have an offensive-minded coach, and you have a guy who's won a Super Bowl. I understand people say, oh, he's a retread, whatever. No, but he only coached in that one place, and we know how it ended. But to me, this is the right fit for this guy. Hopefully Jerry Jones can stay out of it. I know all the Cowboy fans are hoping that he's not looming or over his shoulder, which you know that's going to be the case. But with all that being said, to me, I thought that that was a smart hire and pretty much a layup because of his track record, because he'll be able to get Dak Prescott and company on track. You won't have to worry about having to deal with Jason Garrett anymore. And to me, if you would have brought in a Lincoln Riley or even a Matt Rule you probably would have had that same deal where, okay, you have an offensive mind, but can he get the job done? He's unproven, but no, you don't have to worry about any of that. So that's where it works here with a team that's pretty much ready to win with the talent that they have on that roster. As far as the Carolina Panthers, the Giants, and the Browns are concerned, obviously there are teams that have certainly have fallen on hard times recently. Matt Rule, seven years, $60 million. Now, we get that David Tepper, the owner of the Panthers, is a hedge fund guy, so he was going to throw bucks at him, to, even to the point where he picked him up from the airport or, I guess, met Matt Rule in his driveway coming back from a vacation in Mexico and brought his bags in and pretty much handed over a blank check, which why wouldn't he take that if that's the case? And I know, segue to the Giants, I know a lot of the controversy, or I don't want to say controversy, but maybe the conspiracy theorists will look at it as, geez, why couldn't the... Giants, who Matt Rule was part of their organization in 2012. He's a New York guy. Why couldn't the Giants get him? Well, I wouldn't have given him that money if I'm John Mara either. I totally understand that. But they end up going for a special teams wide receivers coach and a one, Joe Judge from New England. 
And when you look at Joe Judge and even Matt Rule, their press conferences, they just knocked it out of the ballpark. And we all know it's not about what they do here in January as far as their press conferences are concerned. But I'm sure you got to be happy if you're either one of those two fan bases that have those type of guys that are looking to just, you want to go through a brick wall, as I'm sure you probably heard over and over again. You never know with these guys. To me, I think it's a better fit because especially when you look at the Giants, for instance, now Ron Rivera has been there for 100 years. And obviously, he's a guy that's been in the league where Matt Rule, of course, coming from college, from Baylor. And for him to get this opportunity, obviously, is enormous for him. And with David Tepper, he figured, hey, let's all start anew. Let's go on this new journey together. Okay, fine. Even the same for a one John Mara when he looked at the retreads that he had. Let's face it. Pat Sherman was a retread. Obviously, the old Cleveland coach who did nothing in his career. Ben McAdoo, I understand he was on the staff, so you're going to promote him when you let Coughlin go. But no, for them, it was time to get a guy that was going to be, all right, a new guy. He wasn't a Mike McCarthy. He wasn't a a former coach, a guy that's just going to come in here who had a resume, who had a track record. To have a guy like Joe Judge to come in here, to come from the program that he came from in New England, and even before that with Alabama, with both Saban and Bill Belichick as guys that obviously are just giants and titans in their respective sports. I'm not going to say it's a no-brainer because we don't know how this is going to turn out. But knowing that he's going to focus on all facets, not just the offense, not just the defense, he's just not a coordinator who's going to focus on one thing, he's going to focus on the whole thing, you got to love his message right off the bat. But now we got to see how it plays out. And if you're Cleveland, they were reporting that Kevin Stefanski, the offensive coordinator or former offensive coordinator of the Minnesota Vikings, is going to be your guy now. Well, considering that the owner was not going to put a GM in place, he was going to get his coach first for the GM. And I said this last week, and I'll say it again. I would have dialed up Ozzie Newsom wherever he's at. And I know he's retired and he's had his feet up, but he is Mr. Cleveland Brown. Remember, he was a Hall of Fame player for the Browns. He was a guy that was part of the organization even when they moved to Baltimore. So why not just give him a call, throw the blank check at him, say, we want to start a new this is your baby, Ozzy. I'll stay out of the way. We want to get back to the some sort of respectability, and not only that, but get to a Super Bowl. He has two Super Bowl rings on his fingers. That was it. That was to me, it was a no-brainer. But of course, they're going to do it backwards. Who knows how the fancy is going to make out here? I believe his press conference will be in the coming days. But Cleveland, they're a team that's never going to get it or never going to get it right. So, hey, listen, I'm not going to shed any tears for them. So that's for sure. So, and then you also had. The Centennial class, as far as the Hall of Fame coaches are concerned, you have Bill Cowher, of course, the old Steeler. I understand he's a little bit debatable. Yes, he did win a Super Bowl, but he did lose a lot of tough playoff games in his building, especially his favorites in a conference championship. But we know Cowher's had that fire for the 15 years that he was there in Pittsburgh and obviously was part of that renaissance there because, as we all know, toward the end of the Chuck Knoll era, when all the old guard was gone, the Terry Bradshaws, Franco Harris's, of course, the Hall of Fame defense, They went through a lot of lean years in those 80s teams and had a brief moment or two there in the late 80s, but certainly was a shell of their former self. And then having Cower and that regime come in and do what they did, especially in his first five years, making the postseason, making it to those conference title games, making it to a Super Bowl, but losing to the Cowboys and then finally winning one there toward the back end. Uh, Certainly congratulatory to him, as well as Jimmy Johnson, where you kind of thought maybe he already would have been in the Hall of Fame, but we all know that wasn't the case. Both on the spot there during their pregame shows, which was uh, pretty interesting to get their initial reaction and obviously full of tears and full of joy and shock. 
and wonder and all that. So congratulations to both Jimmy Johnson and Bill Cower for making it to the Hall of Fame. And of course, Jimmy Johnson, we all know his resume as far as the two Super Bowls with Dallas, the turnaround, the Herschel Walker trade, which pretty much started the ball rolling for their championship years. And Jimmy Johnson, what can you say? Away we go. And that's not even including what he did with the University of Miami. But again, this is the Pro Football Hall of Fame. So congratulations to both. So that's what we got there with the football people. I know I spent about almost 40 minutes with that. So obviously as we move forward, we're only going to go down to the two games and then the Super Bowl. So we'll start to slowly but surely wean our way off of the NFL. And then after tonight, we won't have to worry about the college game anymore because we have a national championship to be played, which seemed like months ago as far as the semifinals concerned, LSU and Clemson. And this is what I'm going to tell you, cut and dry, people. You can't underestimate the heart of a champion, a la Rudy Tomjanovic. Clemson, we all know what they've done here over the last two years, and especially what they did against Ohio State in the semifinal. We know that Dabble Sweeney, I'm sure he's going to pump up everybody today saying, that, hey, we're the underdog, we don't have a shot, we don't have a chance, so on and so forth, etc. But the sad part is, is that LSU has had this magical run this year, as we've stated time and time again, with an unexpected Heisman Trophy winner, because nobody thought that Joe Burrow was going to be at the top of anybody's list, especially the game before Alabama, because that's when it all started. And the game is going to be in their backyard. It's going to be in the Superdome, which is, what, maybe a half hour from Baton Rouge. I think Clemson, this is going to be a tall order. And I hope they win. Uh, I have no ill will towards LSU by any stretch. How I look at this game is, is it going to be similar to what we saw in the semifinal with Ohio State? If Clemson hangs around this game, I think they're going to win the game. And that's what they did against Ohio State. Ohio State had the opportunities where they didn't convert those touchdowns. They ended up kicking field goals. 16 nothing should have been 23 or maybe even 27 nothing. If that was the case, Clemson wanted to come back. And I could see that being the same here. And the quarterback, Trevor Lawrence, did not have a big game. He made a few big plays, including that final drive, which punctuated the victory there against Ohio State. Four plays, 94 yards. We get that. But you also got to think that this LSU team is on a mission. And anything short of a title will be just a devastating year. So I think if LSU pulls out quick, especially with the crowd behind them, this could be a long night. And I think if I'm going to predict, I'm going to say that. I want Clemson to win. I'd like to see back-to-back. Obviously, they've been to the title game now. I think it's their fifth straight year. Or maybe fourth straight. Fourth straight, I should say. If they're in this game, and if LSU's beating themselves and shooting themselves in the foot, then... I think Clemson's going to win. But to me, they've had just such a big year, LSU. I, I wouldn't be surprised this ends up being somewhere along the lines like 37-21, 41-27, something along the lines of that. So that's how I'm looking at this game. There you have it. That's your college football season in a nutshell. And I'm sure there's a lot of people that probably forget that there's a championship game tonight, which is a disgrace on the NCAA's part, but... Be it as it may, we do have that tonight, so we'll certainly chew on that uh, later on. Uh, turn our attention now. Oh, there's one other thing. I know two is going to enter the draft, which was it's going to be risky. Whoever's going to take him, we all know about his health issues with his knees, his hip. And we all know that if he stays healthy, everybody talked about Tank Fatua. We'll see where he falls in the draft. Obviously, the combine is going to be huge to see where he's at with his 40 and how his, his throwing is going to be fine. I mean, we all know he's a very accurate passer. We all know that's the showcase there late February in Indianapolis. So obviously all eyes will be on that at that time. But Tua entering the draft 
where he could have gone back for one more year. But to me, it's true. What else does he have to prove? He doesn't really have anything to prove but one thing, and that's to stay healthy and perform on the field. We'll go to the NBA. We'll go to the winter sports before we even get to the baseball and with the Red Sox and what's going on there. As far as the NBA concern, I know your headlines over the week was Russell Westbrook going back to OKC for the first time, where obviously he got all the accolades, and rightfully so. He scored 34 points on a loss and felt like he was at home. Good for him as uh, OKC, who's done a very good job. I mean, you can't stress enough, and they got off to a very slow start, as we know, but they've done very well. They're in the mix there in the Western Conference. So kudos to them. See how far they could uh, go, if they could even go a little bit higher in the conference. Maybe could they even attempt to get a four seed? It's going to be tough. But you had Westbrook's return there, which obviously wasn't a big deal up until maybe Wednesday because I even forgot when his first game was, but that's typical NBA, as we've talked about on other podcasts uh, weeks ago. You also had the John Beeline situation, calling out his players in a meeting before a game against Detroit. Meant to call them slugs, but he ended up calling them thugs, where he apologized to each and every player. And obviously in this day and age and the climate, I mean, you, you can't call these players that. It's obviously a bad look on you. And here's a guy who, as we all know, a college coach forever, formerly of Michigan, and then for him to be here. And we knew it was going to be tough sledding for him considering this was his first, not only his first NBA job, but he's coming to a team where, were they 10 and 29 or whatever it is? So he made an error. He apologized to everybody. Damage control was quick. It wasn't prolonged. If that was the case, then you could wonder whether or not he should be terminated, even though he has four more years left on his deal. But uh, obviously, bad look for him. Shouldn't have done that. But at the same time, he was able to make amends rather quickly. So I would think that they moved on from that. And then you had the one health scare of the week where Anthony Davis against the Knicks fell on his back. MRI, his back was okay. I don't believe I'd have to double check if he played over the weekend. I know they had the game in Dallas and in OKC, both games which they won. But the Lakers, if they were to lose any time with him, now granted we know LeBron's going to carry the mail and LeBron's going to be a guy that no matter what, even with not much of a supporting cast there to come off the bench, for him to carry the mail for a little bit, they could do so. But obviously Davis, who's had a monster season, there's no way that he could be out for any extended period of time and know that, all right, he could come back in April and all systems go, we get that. But at the same time, it's certainly risky with a guy who, as we all know, is going to be a free agent after this year. And you would think that he's going to re-up with the team. So, I mean, that's one of those things where, please, the whole reason why they made this trade was because he's going to re-sign there with the Lakers. So nobody's going to look at that and say, oh, geez, does this mean he's going to walk? Does this mean that the Lakers aren't going to sign him because he has the back issue, blah, blah, blah? No, 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 definitely not the case. But uh, as I'm looking here, Davis did uh, not play, was out, so... And it's rightfully so. Give him his rest. Let him take a, a breather here. Let him come back as close to, if not 100% possible. You have a five-game lead over Denver in the conference. So please, they should just take his time. As far as his health is concerned, that's it. And then the other concern here, me being a Celtic fan, losing to the Sixers again the other day without Joel Embiid, it just goes to show you that Size does matter, even with a team that can't space the floor, even with a team that certainly cannot get its bearings here. A Philly team that certainly has, I'm not going to say they've underachieved, but at 25-15 and and 5th in the Eastern Conference as of today, you have to wonder whether or not if this team is ever going to, now can they get hot 
come April, absolutely. I mean, they do have the talent, but again, between the coach and also with the way their personnel is made up, I mean, they need a shooter in the worst way. But for the Celtics, who have certainly had a very good year and are now second in the Eastern Conference, which that's going to be fun from here on out between Miami, Toronto, even Philly for that matter. You want to throw in Indiana because the Bucks are off and running. They're seven games ahead of the Celtics. But it is interesting because long teams certainly are going to hurt the Celtics. Not to say that they're a small team, but when you look at 0-3 against the Sixers this year, and of course when they play the Bucks too, they're also very long. You have the Lopez's. We all, of course, know about Giannis. So you have to wonder how they're going to perform against those type of teams. Yeah, they could beat up on the dregs of the league. They could beat up, you know, on the Charlottes and the Pistons and the Wizards all they want. But And they actually lost to the Wizards. But it's going to be interesting to see how this is going to play out here for a Celtic team that, as we all know, with Kyrie leaving and with Gordon Hayward, who has not been able to stay on the court. He's been in and out of the lineup, of course, with his health issues, but... They certainly have gotten some big contributions. Jason Tatum has played well this year. We don't know about Kemba, of course, when he's been in the lineup. But at the same time, this is such a marathon that we have to wait and see pretty much till April how this is going to pan out. Just like I said with the Lakers. You know, why force Anthony Davis to come back early if you know that it's all about winning a championship? It's not about getting home court. It's not about getting the best record in the league, although that would help and certainly be a factor, you would think, going into the postseason. But as I've said time and time again, home court, home field, home ice, to me, it doesn't matter like it once did. It's a totally different beast now. But the Celtics, it, like I said, it's interesting just knowing that despite their record and despite how well they played this year, the big teams certainly give them trouble, and Philadelphia is just one of those teams as an example. And then Embiid, of course, out with that dislocated finger. I don't know if you saw that in the OKC game last week. It was going west. So he's going to be out one to two weeks with that. Um, yeah, that's pretty much what you got in the NBA. And as far as the NHL is concerned, you had a couple of... Uh, releases from coaches this year. One, Peter Laviolette from Nashville. He gets the axe where their team is certainly underachieved and not performed well this year. He gets the can as John Hines, the former devil coach. Look at it, he got fired just last month and he got a job in five minutes. So I guess whatever Nashville saw in John Hines, they thought that, hey, this is the guy that's going to take us to the promised land or at least close to it for this year. Well, certainly remains to be seen. But you had that, as well as the Devils being in the news where they fired their GM, Ray Shiro. So one month ago, they fired their coach, and now they fired their GM, where the interim is the assistant, Tom Fitzgerald. I'm sure somewhere down the road, they'll probably hire a guy to lead the Devils. And we all know, we talked about it weeks ago when they traded Taylor Hall, the former MVP. This was a guy that was going to be an unrestricted free agent. They were going to do everything in their power to try to keep him on a team where they brought in guys like Wayne Simmons and P.K. Subban and to try to build a nucleus around him to hopefully somehow get into the Eastern Conference mix as far as the playoffs are concerned. And as we know, as of right this second, they are certainly way past that. And we all know hockey, once you get into April and you get the hot goalie, we know the philosophy. And not that it happens all the time, but with the Devils and what they've done over the last two years, and to think, when they went to the postseason and they lost to the Tampa Bay Lightning, they had a MVP player. You thought the future was going to look bright in a sense that even though they had some players that they needed to sign or at least trade for, but they had the bad year last year and then they tried to do that this year only to see if they could keep their former MVP. And as we all know, they had to blow it up because it certainly went south pretty fast and 
Shame for them. Because here in a town where the Rangers are on the come up and the Islanders have been hovering there, it's certainly uh, been a lost couple seasons here for the Devils if you're uh, in this neck of the woods. But as far as the NHL, everything, nothing of, of note to even bring up or discuss. Everything has pretty much been uh, status quo. I know it's uh, been a seesaw there in the Pacific. One week it looks like it's Arizona, the next week, and then it's Vancouver, then it's Vegas, then it's Calgary. Now Calgary has the top spot. Now think about this. The top five teams in the Pacific are separated by two points. Calgary, Arizona, Vancouver, Vegas, Edmonton. That looks like that is going to be a free-for-all. And again, the divisions aren't like they once used to be because as we all know, the way it's formatted now, it's much different when it comes to the playoffs with the wild cards and all that. But still, it's going to be interesting how these teams are going to jockey for position to get that divisional crown to, of course, host in the first round when it comes to the playoffs. But uh, other than that, I mean, that's what you pretty much got. St. Louis is in control of the Central. The Islanders have certainly hit the skids here of late. They haven't really been playing well, where Pittsburgh obviously has certainly leapfrogged them, as we talked about last week. And they played well, and I believe they played... No, it's Pittsburgh-Boston is your first NBC Sunday game next week. I want to say they play this week on a Wednesday, but I'll look at that. And then, of course, you have the Bruins in control of the Atlantic as far as the NHL is concerned. And that's pretty much what you have as we move along here. And the All-Star break is two weeks from this past weekend in St. Louis, where I know players are now starting to back out of it, where you have Alexander Ovechkin saying that, oh, I need rest. Uh, I'm not going to show up, and I'm sure you're going to have a lot of other players do the same, which is a shame. But uh, that's what we live in in this day and age, that a lot of these players aren't going to play in these All-Star games or Pro Bowls or whatever it is, and who cares about the Pro Bowl or even any of these All-Star games. And that's how the players feel, so the fans get screwed in that regard. So uh, that's what you have there with the NHL. Quickly with the baseball and the situation with the Red Sox. Now, we know about the Astros, and word came down last week that it's going to be a harsh punishment probably in the, you would think, maybe in the next week or so. I don't know if they finished with their investigation, but they did say it's going to be a harsh punishment. You would think maybe you're talking about at least a year, whether it's the GM, the manager. And I I don't know about any of the players. I think the players are going to be fine because they're just following orders. You know, it's not as if Jose Altuve is drawing up some master plan and bringing it to A.J. Hinch and to ownership that, hey, let's start banging on garbage cans when it comes to these pitches, you know, when when it comes to these batters on deck or at the plate where we could try stealing some of these signs. Not the case. So I think it's going to be from the top down where you're going to get these punishments. And now the Red Sox are involved. And the Red Sox... They're going to comply. They're going to, they've said all the right things so far, but for them to use that replay room throughout the whole regular season, which that's in question, and when you think about it, in the postseason where TBS and Fox and everybody else comes in there, they're unable to use it because, of course, they have a stranglehold of the replay room, so it's not as if they could go in there and utilize it to their strength or to their advantage. But here it is. In a year where they win a World Series, they won 108 games, and they were accused in 2017 with the whole Apple Watch thing. And that's where the edict came down that no technology should be used when it comes to sign stealing. And now here it is, not even a year after that, throughout the whole regular season, and when they had this indestructible team, they marched onto a World Series. And granted, they didn't use it in the postseason, but for the regular season, they use it. And what's going to happen here? 
Funny enough, how Alex Cora was involved with the 2017 World Series team and now front and center here with the 2018 team. Listen, if there's smoke, there's fire. And you would think whatever the Astros are going to get, the Red Sox are probably going to get the equalizer, maybe even more, depending on what they find out. So, and rightfully so. Listen, does it mean that, oh, you got to take away the championship? No, that's stupid. That's not going to happen. This isn't the NCAA. This isn't, let's take down the banners for the Final Four, for the uh, Fab Five of Michigan back in the early 90s. No, it's none of that. But obviously it's a, it's a black mark. I know me personally, I won't say, oh, you got to take away the championship. No, but at the same time, you have to look at that and say, geez, it, it has to come in question. I just think it's a bad job. I mean, why? Ugh. Well, anyway, we'll, we'll see what Major League Baseball does. I'll be fascinated and anticipating what they do with the Astros. And then, of course, you pretty, pretty much are going to follow up with the same result, if not more or worse, for the Red Sox and whatever they find during their investigations. And then one last thing. Let me touch on the college basketball, which I've said last week, and I've said it a million times. It's amazing to think that this college basketball season where nobody's paying attention, let's face it, and everybody will start paying attention the first and second week of March. But between all the number ones that have been flip-flopping, especially before the new year, Gonzaga's your number one, by the way, with Duke 2, Kansas, Baylor, and Auburn round out your top five. But when you have Clemson finally winning at North Carolina for the first time in the last 59 tries, and then Michigan State losing to Purdue by 30, which is the first time in Michigan State history that they were ranked as a top 10 team losing by 30 points to anybody, just goes to show you that college basketball is probably going to be the biggest crapshoot known the man this coming March because your brackets, you can't even predict. And we understand who the powerhouse teams are, and you're pretty much going to look at those teams that when the time comes, you're going to pick those teams. But we all know. It's like the NFL playoffs. One and done. And again, I haven't really focused much on college basketball. We've talked about NFL, it seems like, forever here. And we've sprinkled in the winter sports and as well as baseball. But here, we don't know what's going to happen. And... I'm just kind of putting it out there for now as we continue through January and go into February and certainly set the stage for March, how right now you can't even say, despite the fact that Gonzaga is the number one team and would be number one overall as far as the 64 for the bracket is concerned, but I tell you, would you be surprised Gonzaga goes out in the second round? And again, it's way too early. We don't know what the matchups are, et cetera. We get that, but... This is going to be one season where nobody's going to have a finger on the pulse of the college basketball season. And that's what makes it riveting and fascinating. It's not like you're going to have your top-heavy two or three teams that, oh, they're going to be automatics. Might as well just pencil them in, and then you're going to see them there at the Final Four, which is good. And it's good for sport, and it's to me it's good for the league, but at the same time, well, good for the NCAAs, but at the same time, because nobody watches, nobody follows, it's almost as if, just wake me up March 13th, and away we go. All right, now to wrap up my hero in zero of the week. My hero of the week is Oakland running back Josh Jacobs for what he did for his father and his situation. Not only that, even as a kid, he was homeless at times and had to live out of a car. And his father, who had been struggling and pretty much took custody of him and his, I believe he had two other siblings, which were his sisters, he ended up buying him a house. And we understand from time to time we hear stories about this and it's very heartwarming, but considering this is rookie year, First year in the league, for him to go buy him a house in Oklahoma where they're from, to me, that's as good as it gets when it comes to not only sports, but just humanity is concerned. So Josh Jacobs, you are my hero of the week, my guy, and my zero of the week. I don't know if you've seen this video, and I get it's irrelevant because it's in Venezuela and nobody really cares, but 
for this former Diamondback catcher, Alex Romero, and he played in the Diamondbacks, I believe, in the late aughts, 2008-2009. For what he did, down 13-1, I understand they threw at him, and he was upset, and he was in a rage, but for him to swing his bat at the catcher, not once, but twice? I mean, what are you doing? And we understand in, in this Venezuelan league, there was a brawl in the previous inning. Uh, I don't know how it started, how it precipitated. You would figure there had to be some beanballs involved, whatever, and there were players ejected. But So at the top of the eighth, they throw at Romero, and what does he do? He takes a backhanded swing at the catcher, and then he takes a one-handed swing. Uh, I mean, you can't even, even as you're seeing it, you can't believe it. You almost have to rewind it ten times to make sure you're actually viewing what you're seeing. And thankfully, I believe the catcher's fine. I don't, you know, he wasn't conked on the head, thank God. He looked like got baby hit in the back and in the ribs, just based on the video. But it happened so fast, you just you're shell shocked. But for him to do that, obviously he's going to be banned forever. I'm sure they took the bats, the cleats, everything away, and they shipped them long and far. So whatever chance that he had of playing baseball in the major leagues, certainly he just not only threw it out the window. He flushed it down the toilet. It's somewhere out in the Atlantic. Just an awful job. Alex Romero, if you haven't seen the video, just, I guess, Alex Romero baseball brawl, and you'll see for yourself, because he is my zero of the week. So that will do it, my people. If you enjoyed this podcast, if you're your first-timer, or even a second-timer, whatever it may be, and you like what you've heard, and you certainly, hopefully, you'll come back and listen to many more in the weeks and months to come, please, I implore you to go either to wherever you get your podcast from, wherever platform it you use, Apple, Google, Spreaker, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Luminary, any of those platforms, please subscribe. Just press the button. Just go on your phone. It takes literally seconds, people. Not only that, leave a rating, post a review, whatever it may be, because all that's going to do is just increase the visibility of this podcast amongst the many, the plethora of podcasts out there, especially in the sports world. And because of the way I deliver this podcast platform, we're talking about all sports. It's not just basketball. It's not just baseball. As you've heard over the past hour, I talk about everything, go fully in depth, and that's what I do each and every week, people. Please, I employ you to do so. I'll be forever indebted, grateful, thankful, the whole nine. And again, subscribe, leave a rating, post a review. Please do that. As well as check any of my social media accounts. I just posted a promo last night, which hopefully will go viral. Uh, I've also promoted it not only on my Instagram page. If you go to J Reels, J-A-Y-R-E-E-L-Z. Also J Reels 1, just a number on Twitter. The J Reels podcast fan page on my Facebook page. And also send me an email at the J Reels podcast at gmail.com. Feel free to do that. Leave a question, comment, criticism, praise, whatever it may be. I'm open to any feedback. Please hit me up, people. I'll be more than happy to respond. And again, just grateful and thankful to put out this podcast each and every week for the masses, for you to be informed, entertained with credible sports talk and opinionated sports talk like no other. And lastly, if you want to contribute to the podcast, you could also do so. By going to my Patreon page, that's www.patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash the J Reels Podcast. That goes to any advertising, marketing, merchandise, whatever it may be. So please feel free to do that. And again, I will certainly be forever grateful and thankful for your participation, for your contribution, whatever it may be, as I talk to you each and every week and deliver sports talk, whether it's on the gridiron, the ice, the hardwood, diamond, Golf course, racetrack, tennis court, you name it. From my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are, the J Reels Podcast always comes correct, direct, and in full effect. From the South Bronx to South Beach to South Central to South Pacific and all points beyond, peace, love, and God bless everybody. And until next time on the J Reels Podcast, on the flip, baby.